Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of human sexuality. We thank you that you have given us this book of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs to teach us how to properly use that precious gift. And we ask that you would uh, guide our study tonight in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Song of Solomon, or also known as Song of Songs. Jesus Christ, lover of our souls. Ed was asking me a little bit ago about why do, why do some people call it Song of Solomon and other people call it Song of Songs. Well, the very first verse says the Song of Songs, which is Solomon. So take your choice, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. And, and why, what do we mean exactly when we say Song of Songs? Well, in the English language, we have, uh, with our adjectives, we have comparative and superlative. Good, better, best. You know, if you have just one good thing, it's good. If you have two good things and one is gooder than the other, it's, it's better. And if you have three or more things and one of them is greater in goodness than the other ones, it's best. Well, we don't have that in, in Hebrew. So how do we do superlatives in, in Hebrew? Well, yes, correct. You, you use the word twice, once in the singular and once in the plural. So for example, the holiest place in the tabernacle or in the temple is the holy of holies. And there, there are several other examples of that. The God of gods, God is superior to every other thing that's called God. He's the God of gods. And in Exodus, it talks about a Sabbath of Sabbaths. The, the way it's usually translated in our English translations is a Sabbath of complete rest, but, but literally it's Sabbath of Sabbaths. And in Ezra, there's king of kings. So there, there were other subordinate rulers under Artaxerxes, but he's the, the one chief ruler. He's the king of kings. And it can go the other way too, you know. You can, besides big, bigger, and biggest, you can have little, littler, or littlest. Um, Noah, when he was cursing uh, Canaan, he said that he would be a servant to his brothers, but not just any servant. He would be a servant of servants. He'd be the lowest of the servants. And then, of course, when we get to Ecclesiastes uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about vanity of vanities. So that's what we mean when we say the song of songs. So there's many songs, but this is the one ultimate song. This is the song of songs. The first verse of Song of Solomon identifies King Solomon as the author. We know from 1 Kings 4.32 that Solomon wrote more than 1,000 songs, but this was his greatest hit, so to speak, his song of songs. This song was singled out as a separate work and canonized in scripture. Solomon probably wrote the Song of Solomon when he was a young man, possibly around 950 BC. So, by the way, that, that's why I'm doing them in this order, because I think that Solomon wrote the Song of Songs when he was a young man, and he wrote Proverbs when he was about a middle-aged man, and then he wrote Ecclesiastes when he was elderly. So I'm doing them in the chronological order that I think he wrote them. 
So in our Bibles, the Song of Songs is the last of the, of the books of Solomon, but I'm going to do it first. While Solomon's other books, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, focus on the intellectual and philosophical issues of life, the Song of Solomon centers on emotion. It's a poem that depicts the wooing and wedding of a country girl to King Solomon and the deep passions that um, ensue in their married lives. It reflects a, a two-year period in their relationship. So if we want to outline the, the book of Song of Solomon, the, the first chapters are the courtship, when, when uh, Solomon and Shulamith, as her name is, the, the Shulamite, uh, when they meet and court and prepare for marriage, then the wedding, and then the marriage. So that's basically how the book is divided up. Um, although Song of Solomon tells a true love story between a husband and wife, it also points to the kind of love God has for his people. Without straining the meaning or consigning it to allegory, we'll talk more about that later, the Song of Solomon effortlessly hints at a truth unpacked in the New Testament. A number of passages draw a connection between the human marriage and God's love for Israel and the church. Marriage between a man and a woman is a microcosm of divine love, a picture of the great love Christ has for the church. This idea is especially reflected in one of the best-known verses in the book, he brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. A banner's purpose was to clearly identify the people who gathered beneath it, whether they were soldiers or, or members of a tribe. In the context of the verse, Solomon's bride was enjoying the, an unmistakable public display of her husband's love for her. He was identifying her as the one that he loved. Similarly, God's banner of love over the Christian is the cross. If you ever doubt God's love for you, all you have to do is look at the cross, the visible sign of his sacrificial, eternal, perpetual love. It's humbling to think of what Jesus suffered to show God's banner over us. And going to the cross, Jesus not only sh uh, showed his passion to fulfill the will of the Father, but he also showed us the commitment and sacrificial love that a successful godly marriage requires. The, the history. The Song of Solomon is believed to be the first of Solomon's three works in the Bible, likely written in the early years of his reign. Along with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, it chronicles Solomon's thoughts and ideas during his time, during his rise to power, his wise ruling during Israel's golden age of unification, you know, when it was still all one kingdom, and ultimately his falling away from God, uh, painting a revealing picture of his reign. So we, we learn a lot about Solomon's reign by looking at his three books. And also one of the Psalms is attributed to Solomon, Psalm 72. So the travel tips, some things that we can learn from this book. First of all, put character first. Solomon's bride was first and foremost attracted to his character 
and his, his good name more than anything else. Second of all, sex is for marriage. God designed sex to be an expression of, of intimate love within the boundaries of marriage. Since sexual impulse is God's invention, it must be God-guided and God-governed. And finally, a, mar a godly marriage takes hard work, humility, forgiveness, respect, and kindness. The key to having a successful marriage is the same as, your, as in your walk with Christ, deny yourself. So let's take a look at the idea that Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon. It seems that liberal scholars always want to claim that books of the Bible were written long after they were actually written. And they always want to claim that the person who wrote the book couldn't really have written the book. Well, I think there are some compelling reasons for believing that, that Solomon did write the Song of Solomon. Well, first of all, of course, there is the, the direct claim of the first verse. This is not a dedication to Solomon. That's what, what some scholars claim. Well, Solomon didn't write it. It's just a book dedicated to Solomon. But this is not a dedication to Solomon, but an attribution to him as its author, in the same way that a psalm of David is one composed by David, not one written for David. Uh, secondly, the vocabulary and style are very similar to the vocabulary and style of Ecclesiastes, which is Solomonic in origin. The natural history found in the song corresponds to Solomon's encyclopedic knowledge in this area. When the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, he, he wowed her with all of his knowledge about the natural world. Some 21 plants and 15 animals are identified in the song. So there, there's lots of plants and animals in, in the Song of Solomon. The allusion to horses and riches is characteristic of Solomon's time, where the king was very wealthy. You can read about that in 1 Kings 4 and 10. Along with that, the evidence of royal luxury and abundance of costly imports is eminently characteristic of Solomon's time. The geographic references clearly favor a date during Solomon's reign. The absence of any reference to the later northern capital of Samaria supports this view. There's no mention of Samaria in the book. And along with that, all of the cities, both north and south, are spoken of as part of one undivided kingdom. So it, it does mention lots of cities, both north and south, and in fact, the the city that uh, Shulamith, the Shulamite, came from is in the north. But there's no mention of it being distinct kingdoms. So they're all part of one kingdom. And this depicts a period during Solomon's reign. And then, of course, there's a very important subject that the Song of Solomon or Song of Songs deals with. Song of Solomon extols the richness of human erotic love as a gift from God. It is his celebration of sexual intimacy within the bounds of marriage. Erotic love within the marriage relationship, then, does not lie outside the sphere of God's intended blessing. Rather, it is God's gift to be received and enjoyed. 
uh, one commentary that I looked at put it this way. While the marriage relationship is meant to be a partnership and friendship on the deepest level, that does not mean that the sexual and emotional aspects of love between a man and a woman are themselves unworthy of the Bible's attention. Sexuality and love are fundamental to human experience, and it is altogether fitting that the Bible, as a book meant to teach the reader how to live a happy and good life, should have something to say in this area. Clearly, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, has much to say in this area. Love and marriage is of God. God created sex and gave it to men and women to enjoy within the bounds of monogamous marriage. Clearly, it should not be forbidden. First Timothy talks about the forbidding of marriage being a doctrine of demons. Indeed, godly richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. The Song of Solomon is a beautiful example of how God's riches are literally fulfilled within the true love of a biblical marriage. Genesis 2, 18-25, is the story of the creation of woman and the resultant intimate relationship between the man and her. This intimacy is given a sexual significance in verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. However, in the next chapter, Adam and Eve give in to the temptations of the serpent. As a result, there is a disruption of the perfect relationship between them and God. Furthermore, sin produces alienation between Adam and Eve. This estrangement is given a sexual cast in, in, in 3.7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When we turn to the Song of Songs, we see the man and his wife in the garden, naked and feeling anything but shame. One commentary puts it this way. The Song of Songs redeems a love story gone awry. The book pictures the restoration of human love to its pre-fall bliss. A question that arises is, is God's name in the song? Is, uh, is God's name in this Song of Solomon, or is it like the Book of Esther, without a mention of God? Well, in answer to the question, is God's name in, the, in this song? Uh, yes and no. It depends on how you translate it. Uh, the verse in question is in chapter 8, verse 6. The King James Version says, For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath a most vehement flame. The RSV uh, has that same reading, a most vehement flame. This fire that, that uh, represents love. And the new RSV uh, says a raging flame. A most vehement flame, a raging flame. Uh, 
the Holman Christian Standard Bible says, uh, it talks about love's flames are fiery flames, the fiercest of all. So all of these different translations are talking about the intensity of the flame. But if you look at Young's literal translation, what it says is, its burnings are burnings of fire, a flame of Yah. Now, most of you know that the, the sacred name, the Tetragrammaton, is composed of four consonants in, in the Hebrew, yod Hey, vav Hey, uh, which we commonly translate as Yahweh. But many times in the Bible, uh, it's in abbreviated form, just the first two, yod Hey, pronounced Yah. And it says in this verse that love is a flame of Yah. So you could say that, that God's name is mentioned. It, it's uh, indirect reference to God. It's, uh, it's used adjectivally. So it's, uh, it's so subtle that it, it doesn't even come across in many English translations. The, the, the uh, NASB does very, a very good job of this. It talks about its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So God, God's name really is in this book. Now, theories of interpretation. Um, the, book, the book, The Song of Solomon, is probably the most mysterious book in the Bible because there is widespread disagreement about how to interpret it. There's even debate about whether it should even be in the, in the canon of Scripture. So, the theories of interpretation, first of all, there's the allegorical interpretation. It has been common among both Jews and Christians to take this song symbolically as an allegory of Yahweh's love for Israel or his love for, or Christ's love for the church. So there's the allegorical interpretation. Then there's the typological interpretation. Christians have often viewed the bride and groom as a prefiguration or type of Christ and his love for the church. And then there's the literal interpretation. Those who take the song literally fall into two groups generally. There are those who take it as a purely secular story with no uh, spiritual significance. So these people are the ones who reject the book's canonicity. They don't think it should be in the Bible. But others see it as a literal story with deep spiritual significance concerning the holiness and wholesomeness of monogamous marriage. So let's, let's take a closer look at these different theories of interpretation. Uh, I should also note that those who do take the book literally are also divided over whether the song is a drama, a narrative, a story, or just a, an anthology, a collection of unrelated love poems. So there's that division as well. But let's go back to the allegorical interpretation. Throughout much of church history, this allegorical interpretation has been followed. Now, it is true that there are passages in the Bible that might lead us to an allegorical interpretation. In Isaiah, 
For the Lord has called you like a wife, like a wife of you. This is speaking of Israel now. That Israel is like a wife to the Lord. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that analogy is definitely used in the Bible. And then in the New Testament, we see, for I feel a divine, this is Paul writing, he says, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So the analogy of Christ in the church is also used as a connection to marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So once again, the church is like a bride that will bear fruit for God. And then in in Ephesians, of course, is probably the best known example. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And it's quoting here from the Old Testament uh, in Genesis. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So there is, there is this basis of a metaphor for between husband and wife, bride and bridegroom, and either God and Israel or Christ and the church. But allegory goes way beyond general metaphors. The problem with the allegorical method of interpretation is that every physical detail is assigned a profound spiritual significance. The identifications become very arbitrary subjective and speculative. I'll give you some examples. This is from Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. The king has brought us into his chambers. So this is how, this is the Jewish allegory of that passage. A Jewish allegorical interpretation sees this passage as a reference to the Exodus. God takes Israel away from Egypt and into God's own chambers, the promised land. So that's how that is uh, interpreted in, in the Jewish Targum, which is a actually a Aramaic translation of the, of the Old Testament. Now let's, let's take a look at a few Christian interpretations, allegorical interpretations. 
Hippolytus, this is around 200 AD, he interprets the passage that we just looked at as a reference to Christ who brings saints into the church. So that's how he interprets this, take me away, hurry, you know, the king has brought us into his chambers. He, he interprets that as Christ bringing saints into the church. How about this one in 113? My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. Well, here's how Cyril of Alexandria interpreted that. In three, he lived from 376 to 444. According to his allegorical approach, the breasts are the symbols for the Old and New Testaments. While the sachet of myrrh is Christ who rests between the Testaments. So you can see that the allegorical approach, in the allegorical approach, you're only limited by your imagination. And then, then there's this one. In chapter 6, verse 8, it talks about there are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. So what do those 80 concubines represent? The 80 concubines were taken to represent the 80 heresies destined to plague the church. <laughs> it's much better to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible, to acknowledge only those symbols which the Bible clearly identifies as symbols, and not assign symbolism to all of our own imagination, and just to dream up symbols that we think they mean this and that means that. For example, in the book of Revelation, we read about seven stars. And then it tells us the seven stars are seven angels. We don't have to speculate about what the seven stars represent. And, and also in Revelation, when we read about this great dragon who drew a third of the angels, a third of the stars from heaven, then it goes on to explain that that's that old serpent, the devil and Satan. So we don't have to speculate about what the dragon represents. But with the allegorical approach, there's all kinds of speculation. Well, this means this, and this means that, and... Well, how do you know that? Uh, so someone else, well, the person might say, well, it makes sense. Well, yes, but someone else might come up with a different explanation that makes just as much sense to him. So, Why did allegory become so popular in the early centuries of church history? Because this, this allegorical method of interpretation held sway for many centuries. Why did it become so popular? Christendom came under the influence, early on, of Greek philosophy, particularly the teaching of Platonic dualism, about the relationship between body and soul. So under Platonic dualism, spirit is good, physical matter is bad. So the result was a view of the body and its activities as sinful and evil harsh treatment of the body. Uh, for example, fasting and whipping was promoted because you surely don't want to do anything that's enjoyable. You want to suffer. So sexual abstinence was viewed as a virtue, a viewpoint culminating in celibacy and the monastic movement. So in, in this intellectual environment, reading the song as erotic poetry would have been an embarrassment in the face of its obvious delight in physical pleasures. 
So you don't dare interpret the, the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, literally because you don't want to do anything enjoyable. You don't want to do anything that might give you pleasure. By the Middle Ages, very few would interpret the book in connection with human sexuality. Indeed, to do so was dangerous and could result in excommunication or worse. So you didn't dare claim that the Song of Solomon was to be taken literally. Well, the allegorical method of interpretation held sway until about uh, the mid-19th century. That's when we kind of see other interpretations taking over. Uh, so let's look next at the typological interpretation. Both allegory and type use symbols. But the distinction is that allegory assigns meaning to nearly every physical detail, while type looks only to the, the main outlines. Uh, truly a marriage of the kind in Song of Songs is a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. But it seems unjustified to think of the story of Solomon and the Shulamite as purely a type. Technically, a type is a picture that predicted and was fulfilled in Christ. Actually, the Song, the Song of Solomon lacks the last two of these three characteristics. It is not predictive of some specific event or aspect of the life of Christ, and it could not be fulfilled in Christ. So it wasn't a prediction that was fulfilled in the life of Christ. Although the truth is certainly exemplified in Christ. So that brings us to the literal interpretation. Those who claim that the song is purely secular and should not even be included in the canon of scripture ignore centuries of use by both Jews and Christians. Any questions regarding the book's fitness to be in the Bible were resolved long ago. It seems best to ground our interpretation on the literal, actual love between Solomon and his Shulamite bride. The song transfigures natural love by elevating it to a holy level. So the Song of Solomon is really an actual historical event in Solomon's life. It's not just a, an allegory. It's not just a type. It's an actual event. It is always dangerous to over-spiritualize the meaning of what is apparently historical. The, the dictum, a, a dictum is a, is a noteworthy statement or a, an authoritative statement. The dictum is this. If the literal historical sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense, lest it result in nonsense. And we can see that with some of the allegorical interpretations. As far as the idea that the Song of Solomon isn't really a story, it's just a collection, an anthology, a collection of love poems, well, if you've ever watched an Elvis Presley movie, 
there are different plots. I mean, they're, they're not all the same plot. I mean, in one, he might be a race car driver. and one, he's a helicopter pilot. and and one, he's a, he just got out of the Navy and he's a diver. But in all of them, whatever the plot is, the, the, the idea is to move you from one Elvis song to the next Elvis song to the next Elvis song. You know. But there is a story which connects all of the Elvis songs together. And that's kind of what, what we see in, in the Song of Solomon. The love poems found, poems found in the song are embedded within a continuous story, a continuous storyline, and are not, a means to be, are not meant to be a standalone poetry collected in one book. So there, there really is a story which joins all of these love poems together. Now there's one other variation of, of the literal theory the literal, literal interpretation that I want you to know about. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I don't buy it, but I, I want you to know about it so that if someone confronts you with this, you're not blindsided with some idea that you've never heard of before. I first heard of this when I was in college, but it seems like it's become more and more popular over the last 40 years or so. Now, according to this love triangle theory, there are three people, not two people, not a man and a woman, there are three people involved in the story. There's one woman and there's two men. So the theory goes like this. Solomon wanted to make Shulamith his wife. Shulamith didn't want to be Solomon's wife. Shulamith was in love with a shepherd boy back home. So that's, that's the love triangle theory. Now, if you go that route with the love triangle theory, there's something you have to do because most of the Song of Solomon is a dialogue. Woman, man, woman, man, woman, man. Well, you have to, to take the man's dialogue and divide it and say, well, Solomon said this and the shepherd boy said this and Solomon so. And what happens when you do that, it becomes very arbitrary. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, those are assigned to Solomon. And verses 8 through 15 to the shepherd. You know, right, right next to each other. Even though there is no, absolutely nothing in the text to indicate that the speaker has changed. But you have to go that route if you, if you think that there are two men involved. Some passages, highly inappropriate to a poor shepherd, are interpreted as referring to him. Such as, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed in the gardens and to gather lilies. It is highly unlikely that Israelite shepherds would have had the means, the time, or the inclination for such luxuries as spice gardens or gathering lilies. I just want to point out to you that in the Song of Solomon, lovemaking between the man and the woman is described in images that delightfully express the pleasure of the senses. Sight, smell, taste, hearing, touch. Sight, how beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of an artist's hands. So there's sight and there's smell. 
Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, with henna and nard. So he speaks of all of the fragrances coming from the garden. Taste, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered the myrrh, my myrrh, with my spices. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. So there we have taste. Hearing, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. So here we see, we have sounds, hearing. Touch. I said I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples. So we have the, the five senses all displayed in the Song of Solomon. So the first section of the Song of Solomon deals with the courtship, the time when Solomon and the Shulamite become acquainted and begin to move towards marriage. And so we learn much in this courtship period about proper love. In the first section, proper love is built on an appreciation of good character. Proper love builds on legitimate common ground. There are always going to be things between a man and a woman that aren't common ground, but it builds on legitimate common ground, things that, are, that they have in common. Proper love nurtures by praise, by compliments, and we see that in the, the next section. Proper love cultivates the fragrance of joy. Proper love delights in verbal admiration. Proper love keeps passion and purity in focus. Remember now, this is the courtship period. This is before marriage. Proper love realizes that it must wait for the right time. Proper love has to overcome destructive factors, whether they come from external threats or internal drives. Proper love in bringing greater joy also brings greater pain. And finally, proper love gives its very best. So those are all the things that we learn in, the, in this courtship period. Now, one of the most famous verses of the Song of Songs is this one, chapter 2, verse 1. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Well, what does that mean? Uh, first of all, let's, let's take a look at what Sharon means. We say Sharon in English, and Hebrew is actually pronounced Sharon, like Ariel Sharon, the, the former defense minister, former prime minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon. Sharon is a, is a plain, it's a, it's a flat area, which uh, so it extends south of Mount Carmel, down through Caesarea. That's where Paul went to, departed to go to Rome when he was a prisoner. Down to the outskirts of Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is a modern city, so it, it didn't exist in biblical times, but it the, the city of Tel Aviv grew up around Joppa, down here. Joppa, of course, is where uh, Jonah boarded a ship to try to run away from God. And in the New Testament, it's where 
Peter raised a woman, the Apostle Peter raised a woman from the dead. So that's the plain of Sharon. So when, when the, the woman says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, that's what she's talking about, that area. But what about the idea that she is a rose, a lily? Well, when you're thinking about roses and lilies, don't think in terms of roses and lilies as you know them in our culture. Because those flowers are not native to Israel. So it wasn't roses and lilies like, like you know. What it was probably actually talking about was the crocus. That was a, a flower that, that was native to Israel. Uh, by the way, the the center of the crocus flower is where we get the spice saffron. It comes from the crocus. And it's also talking about the narcissus, another flower that's native to Israel. I understand that the narcissus is related to uh, daffodils. Is that correct? Does anybody know? <laughs> and another aspect of, remember I told you that there are all of these plants that are mentioned in the Song of Solomon. Uh, there's also the fruit of the Song of Solomon. Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Now that, that first part about stay me with flagons, that doesn't sound very good. <laughs> um, so the, the Revised Standard Version says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples for I am sick with love. That sounds better than steaming with flagons. That sounds serious. Uh, the new RSV says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. The NASB says, sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. And the ESV says, sustain me with raisins, Refresh me with apples, where I am sick with love. But the problem is, apples, as we know them, are not native to Israel. So I think the Holman Christian Standard Bible does a better job of translating this. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apricots, where I am lovesick. So not apples, but apricots. Now, I say apricot. Some, some people say apricot. But to me, apricot sounds like a place for monkeys to sleep. Apricot. One thing that, that might puzzle you are these, there are two dream sequences in the Song of Solomon. Uh, until you realize that, you might be kind of confused as to what is going on. There's one dream sequence that appears before the wedding, and there's one that appears after the wedding. So here, here's the first one. On my bed at, by night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I saw him, but found him not. 
the watchmen found me. Now, the watchmen are like our modern-day policemen. They're out at night making their rounds to make sure that nobody's wandering around up to no good. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So once again, this is, this is a dream sequence. This is Shulamith having a dream. Shulamith, Shulamith experiences subconscious fears that produce a recurring nightmare. So she's having a dream. He's telling us in this section about her dream. This section appears to be a dream sequence with uh, fast scene changes and slight connections. And isn't that the way dreams go? I mean, you just flit about from one scene to another, and, and sometimes there's no connection between this and that. In this dream that she has night after night, she intensely searches for Solomon, but she is unable to find him. She fears that the man she loves with her total person is inaccessible to her. This dream of searching may be intended to portray the feeling of loss that Shulamith experiences whenever she senses that her beloved is not nearby. So that, that helps you to understand what's, what's going on here if we recognize that that is a dream. The next section uh, deals with the wedding. So first, the first section uh, I label as appreciation that for which Shulamith had but longed in the opening scene of this song has now come, she has now come to enjoy. So she's getting to the wedding and the wedding night. Purity, Solomon uses the images of a locked garden and a sealed spring to speak of Shulamith's virginity, her virginity as she comes to the wedding. Intimacy, the proper time has now come for Solomon and Shulamith to enjoy sexual intimacy with full joy and without guilt. And then approval, I think this is important. God's blessing is the fitting conclusion to this tender scene presented so delicately in this song. So I, I think that when, sometimes it's, it's difficult to determine in, in the Song of Solomon, you know, who's saying this, is this the man or the woman? And then if periodically there's an interruption from the daughters of Jerusalem. So they're, they're kind of like a, a chorus that chimes in every once in a while. But mostly it's a dialogue between the man and the woman. But this part here, eat friends and drink. Drink your fill of love. I really think that that is God giving his blessing to the man and the wife because it's friends, plural. It's not just one or the other. God is giving them divine sanction to enjoy fully the sexual feast they have just sampled for the first time. Just as he gave his approval to Adam and Eve to eat fully from the fruit of the Garden of Eden. God enjoins them to abide, abide deeply of the intimacy that he has purposed for their pleasure. And then after the courtship and the wedding comes marital love. Now, if this were a, a fairy tale, the way that they often end is, and they lived happily ever after. 
But this, the Song of Solomon doesn't end with the wedding. It goes on to describe growth in marital love. And the first section here, after the wedding, is overcoming selfish indifference. This uh, extended scene focuses on a typical challenge within a marriage relationship, the subversive effect of selfishness. Then the next section I call intended for pleasure. This passage, and it's the most explicitly erotic in the entire song, depicts the vibrant sexual intimacy of Solomon and Shulamith as a married couple. So the most erotic section of the, the Song of Solomon isn't the wedding night, it's when they grow in marital love for one another. The nurture of love, there are four figures of speech that are used to describe the qualities and commitments necessary for love to flourish. A seal, death, inextinguishable fire, and material riches. We'll look at those more closely later. And then the last section is preparing for love. In a sense, this love story has no end because the song cycle does not reach a final resolution, but rather it sweeps on in an upward tra trajectory of delight. Also, I, I want to point out that in this last section of the book, uh, Solomon and Shulamith do what many married couples do. They go to visit the in-laws. <laughs> so, um, they go back to, to Shulamith's hometown, where she came from. And when, when they do this, Shulamith has a flashback, thinking about the old days when, when uh, her, her older brothers considered her their little sister, who hadn't matured physically yet, who hadn't, wasn't prepared for marriage. So she has a, that flashback in that last section. So I, I mentioned before that there's two dream sequences. There's the dream sequence before the wedding, and then the, there's this dream sequence in this marital growth and marital love section after the wedding. Once again, here, here's the tip-off. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew my locks with the drops of the night. So once again, this is, this is a dream sequence. Shulamith is dreaming. I had put off my garment. How could I put it on? I had bathed my feet. How could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh. My fingers were liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and was gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. So in a way, this is kind of like the dream that she's had before the wedding. Once again, there's those watchmen again, the, the policemen. The watchmen found me as they went about this in the city. They beat me and bruised me. They took away my veil, those watchmen of the walls. 
Now remember, once again, this is this is a dream sequence. This didn't really happen. This is a dream. But in her dream, the the, the watchman found her, and of course, what is a woman doing out wandering around at night by herself? They think she's probably a prostitute. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. This passage, uh, chapter 5, verse 2 verse, through uh, 6, verse 13, begins with what appears to be a dream sequence that recalls Shulamith's previous nightmare, remember, that she had back in chapter 3. As a dream is a product of Shulamith's imagination, so it should not be interpreted, uh, it should be interpreted impressionistically, not literally. At the same time, even though some of the details clearly are not intended to be a realistic description, the scene is true to life in that it portrays some of the challenges within marriage. So in this, in this dream sequence, in this story, there is, there is some selfishness. There is some selfish indifference. Now, one of the things that, one of the questions that arises about this sequence, and it's just a minor thing really, but it might puzzle you. Um, I spoke about ancient door latches back when I went through the book of uh, Judges. But we'll look at this again. It says, My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. That's what, that's what the ESV says. The NASB says, My beloved extended his hand through the opening, and my feelings were aroused for him. The NIV combines the two. It says, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. So what's going on here? How, how did he put his hand through the latch? What's, what's the deal? Well, I think this, this illustration will help a lot. This is how ancient door latches worked. See, there, there was an opening through which you could put your arm and also the key. So this... This big thing here that looks like a, a, a toothbrush with a bent handle, I call it, <laughs> that's the key. So keys back then were not, you know, little things that were easily portable. I mean, a, a key was a big deal. So what you would do if you wanted to unlock the latch, you would reach your arm in there and use the, the key to lift the pins. When the, when the bar was slid into place, the, the pins would fall down into holes and hold it in place. So if you wanted to unlock it, you had a key, and you reached in, and you lifted the, the pins, and then you could slide the, the bar over. Well, Solomon didn't have a key, apparently. He was just reaching through the hole to try to alert Shulamith to the fact that he was there and wanted to come in. And she was supposed to get up and let him in, and then she's... But instead of doing that, she started making excuses. Well, I'm in bed, and I've bathed, and I, I can't get up, and... So when she finally realizes that that was not really the best approach, uh, she gets up and goes to open the door and let him in, and he's gone. So, Of course, this is all in a, in a dream sequence, but, but that's what's going on here. So if you wonder why, how he could put his hand through the latch, well, that's, that's it. There's an there's a opening. There's an opening for putting your hand through the door. And now mandrakes. In chapter 7, verse 13, it says, 
the mandrakes that send out their fragrance. And at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. So what is the significance of mandrakes? What are mandrakes? Well, we can read quite a bit more about mandrakes in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 30. During wheat harvest, Reuben, this is, this is the time of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. During wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother, Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away, take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight and return for your son's mandrakes. So she struck a bargain with Leah. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. So as you can see, mandrakes were very highly prized in ancient times. Why is that? Well, because mandrakes were thought to have an aphrodisiac property. And it was also thought that mandrakes uh, made you more fertile. And of course, that's what what Rachel was interested in, she was interested in something that would make her more fertile so she could get, get pregnant and have a, have a son. So that's why she wanted mandrakes and was willing to make a deal with Leah so, just so she could, could get some mandrakes. There is a picture of the mandrake plant and the blossoming flowers on it. The reason that, that ancient people thought that mandrakes had an aphrodisiac property was because the root of the mandrake plant resembles a human being. So there you see a, a drawing of the mandrake plant. The roots are somewhat resembling a human being. And this is a, an illustration from a, a medieval manuscript showing the, the roots of the mandrake plant looking like human beings. Um, there are carvings uh, from ancient Egypt of Egyptian women holding a mandrake either under their nose or under their husband's nose, believing that it had this uh, aphrodisiac quality. I don't know if it really did or not. The Bible doesn't necessarily say that it did or didn't. It just says that it tells us that ancient people believed that, that it had this aphrodisiac quality. In chapter 8, the final chapter of Song of Solomon, verses 5 through 7, there are four figures of speech that are used. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, as flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord, I talked to you before about that. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. So there are those four figures of speech, a seal, death, the flame of the Lord, and 
the, all the wealth, the riches. In ancient cultures, a seal was worn on the hand or on a chain around the neck. This important article is so highly valued that it was used to mark items as one's own possession. For love to grow into its, into its potential, one must value and cherish another person with a wholehearted esteem that creates a desire for closer intimacy. Strong as death. Like death, true love is persistent and irreversible, holding fast and never giving up. Song of Songs describes a love that touches the full range of emotions. It is stubborn in that it will fight for the one it loves. And it is unrelenting as the grave, in the same way that the grave never yields one who has come into its grasp. So does love. There's that fire of Yahweh again. Fire of Yah. Love is like the fire of Yahweh. It's a Hebrew expression referring to vehement lightning. Its flashes are like the fire of Yahweh. The fire of true love cannot be quenched, even by many waters. And that expression, many waters, is used in the book of Isaiah to speak of life's sternest trials. Even my sternest trials cannot quench love. And finally, material riches. Even one's entire personal wealth offered in an effort to purchase love would be spurned. Love is priceless because it is not for sale. Love must be freely given so it is not subject to barter or negotiation. The, the attempt to purchase love would be met with utter, with utmost rejection and disdain. Finally, I wanted to say about the Song of Solomon, it's in the writings, that third section of the Hebrew scriptures. We have the, the Torah and the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim, the Law of the Prophets, the writings. It's in that third section, the writings. And it's in a subset of the writings called the Megillot, the festival books. And each one of these books is read on a certain festival. And the first of these books, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, is read at Passover time. Why is that? What is the connection between the Song of Songs and Passover? Well, spring is the time when Passover comes. And that is also the time when uh, the time of new life. Spring is the time of new life. That is the, the time of Passover. And this is from, from the Song of Solomon. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. In, in Israel, the main time that you get rain is in the winter. Now here the winter has passed, the rain is gone, spring has arrived. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me.
our Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Father, we give you thanks for revealing to us the great plan that you are working out through human sexuality and marriage and what that represents. We thank you for the great love that our Savior has for us. And we look forward to the time when we will truly be at one with him. Thank you for this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.